Well, as you're taking your seat, uh, please take your Bible and open it to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Uh, Judges, the seventh book of the Old Testament. We are now in a place where we've got some ground under us through the book of Judges. And I'm one of those guys when teaching through a book like this, I kind of want to wait for a little while before maybe pulling some things together so we get some experience under our feet in the book with it. And so I'm going to take about 15 this morning and just pull some things together for us and uh, related to the text and where we're going with this. Um, And actually, I want to begin with a thank you, a thank you to you for your grace with me last Sunday, uh, Thursday of uh, a week and a half ago now, uh, I was big time pushed off my bike um, as a result of an email I received from uh, the university where I'm getting my doctorate from, from the doctoral department head, where he was saying that my, uh, apparently my doctoral project was ceased and dis- was now ceased and desist. And I had no, literally no idea Something like that was coming, and I was going to have to change my whole thing. And uh, I've been working on my doctoral project off and on, maybe more off than on, over the last years. Um, And so uh, the notification for me was completely out of the blue, just mystifying, um, just devastated me on it, just a whole variety of levels personally with that. And, um, And it was just weighing on me last Sunday, and I made mention that just kind of a weight was on me last week and with that. And, and I'm kind of bringing this up because we're just family and um, we bring our stuff here. And that's just the reality of life. Um, and that's what was going on with me last week, just to kind of continue, finish the story out. Uh, I had asked in light of that, I'd like a face-to-face meeting with them to find out what in the world happened. And these are great guys. They're not mean guys at all. Great guys. So uh, Tuesday, Karen and I of this week, Karen and I drove up to Chicago. Uh, I had an hour-long meeting with the head of the doctoral department as well as my advising prof, uh, my advising prof, who's 83 years old, by the way. Very cool and yet uh, honestly part of the problem. Um, <laughs> and I say that not as an attack on him. We got things resolved, got some things clarified, but part of what took place was after the meeting, the uh, department head came to Karen and I, pulled us aside and said, hey, I need to apologize to you. I've been observing over here the recent, uh, very near recent past that uh, uh, my advising professor is just um, not all there like he used to be. And uh, that has led to some things of misinformation being processed through and a super sweet guy. The Lord's used him in huge ways, but uh, he's no longer my advising prof. We're, we're on track, and uh, wow. Um, so I, I bring all this up for a couple reasons, but one of them is uh, God knows, I've been long enough doing what I do now, that God uses things in my life with what we have on the table in the texts. And I will say this, it was completely unexpected to me Still bizarre, and yet completely unexpected, or it was completely expected by the Lord. Um, He had the whole thing. I still don't quite know what he was doing with it, Um, but the Lord had it. Um, it, For me, it was like years of work and and passion almost down the drain. The Lord had it, and uh, still has it. I never expected that. It was unexpected to me, but never unexpected to the Lord. And I just start this morning by saying, expect an unexpected God. Um, Too often, we want to expect God. And uh, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, thank you for your grace with me last Sunday. Well, we're in the book of Judges. A few things I want to kind of lay out and remind us of. Why are we in the book of Judges? Three reasons. How many reasons? Three. Three. Number one is because it's the word of God, and that's enough right there. 
Uh, anywhere we can go in God's word is good with me and good with us. But secondly, coming off of our Revelation series uh, last year and just into January of this year, so much of that was, as I understand Revelation is talking about what is most of it, what yes, yet to be coming. And we talked about see Jesus, see the war, see the victory. And yet in it, that, that see the war, Revelation 12, we know that we are living in that spiritual war today. We are in the war zone of it. And yet there's a part of that that comes comes out, well, okay, that's what's coming, some of the dynamics, but what about now living in the war? That's a part of why we're going to Judges. Uh, the third reason why we're going to Judges is coming out of the We Are series that the pastoral staff and one of our elders led for us here in January and February, five things that we are. And one of the questions that comes out of that is, is what if we are not what we say we are? What if we say we are this, but actually we don't Go and be that. What happens? The book of Judges shows what happens. So I'm coming out of those with that. What does it look like when we are not what we say we are in this war that we presently live in, in the spiritual war we live in? That's why we're in the book of Judges, to learn from it. Now we're five weeks into it, so what's going on with the book of Judges? This is one of those books you kind of get started, you go for a while, and it's like, whoa, slow down, what's happening? So I want to do that here for a moment. Let me just say it this way. Round numbers. It's telling us essentially a 400-year time period about God's people. It's telling us of this time period about God's people. They're living in the war and they are not being who God called them to be. And we are looking at them, seeing that they were called to be something, they promised they would be something, and yet they weren't. And during this 400-year period of time, let's look at this, but let's also see our God in it. Because what we find, I haven't gotten there yet, I'm, I'm not a guy who goes to the very end of the book and then comes all the way back to the beginning. We're going to find out here in a little while, though, that the problem was is they did what was right in their own eyes. By the way, not pagans... God's people. God's people were doing what was right in their own eyes. We'll get there, but we're headed there. So that's what's going on overall in the book of Judges. God's dealing with his people who are not what they were called to be. So how is the book of Judges telling the story? This is critical. I want for you to try and grasp this morning because I think Judges tells the story not in your typical manner. We say it this way. If it's telling a 400-year, a story over a 400-year period of time, generally you start from the beginning and you walk through, right? I mean, that's how you tell the story. Well, but that's if you want to tell the historical chronology of the story and if that's your central interest in what you want to do. Judges isn't so concerned about that. Uh, Judges tells it in a different way, the priority part of it, but not the priority. The priority is not historical chronology. It's not a history class. It's not here to tell you just some old people from a long time ago. It's telling you something bigger than that. It's telling us about God's people and God during this period of time. There's different ways you can tell that story. And so uh, what Judges has done is Judges uh, doesn't key in on the historical aspect of it, but is telling about the people and God interacting with the people. Let me give you an example this morning of what I'm referencing here. Let's take the illustration of America during the 1800s. Let's take a 100-year period of time and talk about uh, how Judges essentially is telling the story. What Judges does in telling the story, the Judges way, for telling the story of, say, the 1800s, goes like this. Number one, you begin by orienting the reader to the map, okay? So you put the map of what it is. Now think about it. Uh, I mean, America is still somewhat-ish new. It's where are things at on the map? That's chapter one of Judges. Because you come out of Joshua and they come into the promised land and it's like, so where are they at? What's the status of the map? And so in the 1800s, the judge's way of telling it starts with a map and it says, listen, that's the territory in America, uh, if you will, in the 1800s. Then secondly, it begins to tell a summary of the people of that time. It just steps back and says, let me tell you the whole about what's going on there. That's chapter two of Judges. Okay, it gives a map and then it tells a summary of the people. Uh, and then 
then you begin telling the story of the key people and the key events associated with that throughout the time of period. Historical chronology is a part of it, but it's not the priority of it. It wants you to see what God is doing and what God's people are doing. And it wants you to see that relationship. And so uh, the chronology is not the historical concern. Uh, You are concerned about what's going on with the soul of the people during that time. What's happening with God's people and what is God doing in relationship with them during that period of time? Think of it this way. You you see the whole of the 1800s by seeing the parts of it. Okay, you've got the map, you've got the people. Now, let's begin the parts. You tell the stories of, of kind of the stories and events of what's going on in the north of America during the 1800s. That's giving you insight. And then maybe you jump in and hear some of the stories from the south during that period of time. And then you, you want to hear the story of what's going on in Washington, D.C. during that time. Why is that? Because Washington, D.C. became the capital of the U.S. in 1790. The 1800s, they're still kind of in some ways figuring some aspects out. That gives you insight into what's happening with the people. Then you go out to the western states. Like, what in the world are they doing with all this whole thing. And you might tell about what's happening there. Then you may go and grab a hold of, say, April 12th, 1861, Fort Sumter, South Carolina, and the Civil War begins. Key event, a turning event in the 1800s. And then in that, you might even go say, let me tell you about some of what's going on with some of the central states during the Civil War. I mean, they're like the center of the Oreo cookie. Like, what? What's going on with them? How are they handling it? What's happening uh, with that dynamic of it? And then you may go and grab a key event of this period of time, like April 9th, 1865, when Lee surrenders and the Civil War is uh, over. And then you're kind of like, so then what's the story from there up to 1900? This is what Judges is doing. If I can put it pictorially. This is how the story, if you will, of the 400 years of the book of Judges is being told. It's like this. Chapter 1, summary of the map in the promised land. Chapter 2, summary of the people during that period of time. Chapter 3 and following becomes all the parts of the whole telling the story. Does that help? I hope so. With it, we are in the parts. By the way, a couple notes that as you look on the map here, you can see some of these stories overlapped and intersect. Some of them are north, some of them are south, some of them are north. It's not so much even necessarily where they're at, it's the fact that they are happening. You can also see that there, there might be a key event, turning event or two. I just put Jericho over here from last Sunday just because, boy, that, that was kind of an event. But there can be key events that, like the Civil War that become a turning point, if you will, uh, of time. Also, uh, uh, note just the sub-stories are telling the big story of what's happening, okay? That's where we're at. We are at right now, uh, starting today, we're gonna grab a one-verse story of um, the third story, the third sub-story that makes up the parts. Okay, last thing before we dive in. Look at your sermon notes page, and you can see on there, it says we're in chapter three, verse 31, And then we're over in chapter 6, verse 1 through 10 today. Like, what's the deal with that? Uh, Great question. Here's the deal with that. Mother's Day. Totally serious about this. Mother's Day. Um, If we entered right into chapter 4 right now, which was originally actually my plan, and then into 5 and 6, Gideon would be on Mother's Day. And that would either mean we do Gideon, which just doesn't quite fit for Mother's Day, Or we step out and we do something else oriented to Mother's Day. Or because historical chronology in this section of the book of Judges I don't think is a critical issue, I'm jumping to a sub-story and then we're going to come back to chapters 4 and 5. 
so that chapter 4 will hit the week before Mother's Day. Chapter 5, Deborah's song, will hit on Mother's Day. Okay? All right? All good? That's why we're making this jump. Oh, by the way, one of the really cool things, so we're going to chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, then Pastor Cody is actually taking the next two Sundays for us. He's taking us through Gideon. He had done some research with his MDiv degree on Gideon, and so Cody's bringing it for the next couple weeks. Absolutely, okay? All right, 15 minutes, Bam! 15 minutes and 55, 14.55. All right, we are right on schedule, sorry. Big deals to me, sometimes gotta be celebrated. All right, all right, Judges chapter three, we go there, uh, look at verse 31, and you tell me, who do we meet? Shamgar. You know Shamgar well, don't you? I mean, you've heard of him in Sunday school class if you were, grew up in church and not. Okay, Shamgar. Shamgar is the third key individual that we've met now. Now, I want to have a little fun here because I want to get, grab, pull us up to Shamgar here. In chapter 3, verse 7, we began the sub-stories. And there are key individuals that are part, a key part of these sub-stories. And in this, all right, work with me here. Work with me here, all right? I'm trying to figure a way to help you remember these people as we move along here. So I'm, I'm trying to have some fun with you here, and, and, but on purpose. Okay, so the first guy that we met was Othniel, all right? So we have Othniel here. Now that's not Othniel, that is Ulysses S. Grant, okay? But I'm grabbing him, one, because of the Civil War talk, but two, because Othniel was like a war general hero. When you read through it and you take a look at it, he kind of did it the way we would assume things would happen in the Old Testament. God raised him up and he led a war out and they won the war. Othniel is the war general dude of uh, so far that we've met. Okay, now I'm getting more creative here, working with the theme here, uh, sort of. Uh, next is Ehud, the assassin. And uh, I told you last week, he reminds me of Jack Bauer. He is the Jack Bauer of Judges. And still, if you don't know who Jack Bauer is, oh, come on. Now, maybe this may motivate you to go and uh, pick up some of that series, 24 series. But listen, Jack Bauer seriously was a little bit like when I was reading through Ehud. Jack Bauer loves his country. He loves his people. And he pushes the edge a little bit on some things, causing some people to be uh, wondering, is making a knife, sticking it in your pocket, and killing the king okay? Um, that was Ehud. That was Ehud. Okay. Now, Shamgar. What do we do with that? All right, here we go. Shamgar. <laughs> Shamgar is the Neo of Matrix, and you're asking, why is he the ox goad warrior? Why have I grabbed Neo? This is spot on. This is spot on. Uh, let's look at the text. You ready? Good. Verse 31, chapter 3. After him, uh, after Ehud, who is after Othniel, and, and there is a, a essentially kind of a chronology that's moving here, but, but that's not the central point. But after him... Uh, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Okay, some things about this uh, one verse mysterious man here. Um, so many questions come out of this one verse. That's all we have. That's all we have on, this, on that point. Uh, so many questions, and I will tell you, so few for sure answers. I want to be right straight up with you. Uh, there's a lot of things I'm going to tell you we don't know about him. Uh, so think about it, though. Your life reduced, reduced to one sentence. Uh, and yet that's put in here. It's in God's word. It, it, it's, it's important for some reason. Uh, let's try and see if we can't grab a little bit of that. Shamgar. Shamgar is a non-Israelite name, uh, most likely. Some say maybe not necessarily, but it most likely is a non-Israelite name. It's likely... Uh, Shamgar was a non-Israelite, very possibly so. I, I'm inclined to think so after the reading I've done and on both sides of, of that, but I think it's most likely he was not an Israelite. And I'll even go this far. It 
potentially could be that Shamgar was not a worshiper of Yahweh. In other words, it's possible that Shamgar was a pagan. And I'm not driving my stake in the ground on that. I'm not being dogmatic about that, but it's a possibility. Just tag that away in your mind. Oh my goodness, our God does unexpected things. Uh, uh, then it's Shamgar, son of Anoth. This brings some interesting dynamics to trying to understand this guy. Son of Anoth, it's, it's Beth Anoth is the Hebrew, or Ben Anoth is the Hebrew, and it could mean Ben, that idea of son of, as in worshiper of Anoth. Anoth was a Canaanite goddess. It could be saying that, but it also could be saying uh, in the term used in the day that it means referring to son of as a resident of Beth Anon that's in Galilee. It also could be referencing that he is a resident of, son of, that's how they would talk about that at times, a resident of, uh, of, of the, uh, what, let's, let me grab it here, uh, of Anoth in Judah which actually is geographically closer to the Philistines. Which one is he? Don't know. But I just want for you to know, sometimes it's okay to go through God's word and study and walk away and go, I'm not quite sure. It's okay. It's okay. But we know Shamgar here, likely non-Israelite, either he is a worshiper, noted as a worshiper of, uh, of this goddess, I think is unlikely, but I have nothing to base that on other than it just seems odd. Now, it could be that he's from Galilee. It could be that he's from Judah. We're going to leave it at that. But it says here he killed 600 Philistines. 600, that's a lot. By the way, the question that comes out is, did Shamgar do this single-handedly? Or is this stated in the kind of a way as a leader that he was part of a militia? I'm going to call it a farmer's militia for a reason here in just a second. Was he the leader of that and then comprised under his leadership there were 600 Philistines that, that were killed out here. I think when you read grammatically through this, I'm going to say it this way, you get the feel that the text is saying Shamgar did it himself. I mean, just when you read the text, I, 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 I got to be careful with it, but you get that feel off of it. Kind of like Neo going after, was it Captain Smith? No one knows. No one wants to say they know. Um, going after all these guys again and again, okay, over on the side screens. Okay, with that, I'm not quite sure. I think it's probably himself, and I say that because of the next thing. It says, with an ox goad. Ox goad. Everybody knows what an ox goad is, not. Okay, an ox goad is an eight-foot-long wood pole that on one end would have kind of a steel pointer. Why? Because it was used when plowing fields. So you can just imagine, and they have paint, uh, pictures of this in ancient times where they have a plow, they have it strapped to a, an ox or two, and so you're not riding the ox, you're not walking next to it because you've kind of got to be back on the plow, and so you would have this long eight foot, I'm telling you, these guys were studs back in that day to be able to handle all that. And this eight foot long pole, and they would use this uh, pointy end. It's not like a spear, if you will. Uh, they're not trying to kill the ox. They're just using that to tap them, to push them, to stop, to turn, and so forth. And, and on the other end of it was oftentimes a, a steel piece that was flat. Why? Because they would prod the, the ox with this. I was going to say goat. They, prox, they, they prod the uh, ox with it, and then they take this end and would sometimes use that end to scrape the dirt off of the plow. Got the implement? You see Neo? <laughs> that's what I'm talking about, okay? And essentially, that's what the text is saying. Doug, you know, this, this is CG, computer graphics. This is just a story. That can't happen. And my response is, well, yeah, true. That is just a movie. But know this, when God is behind, he can do anything. And we are going to be seeing through the book of Judges these odd implements. And here we have really one of the first ones. It's an ox goad. And he uses this to kill 600 Philistines. Is it all at one time or is it by himself? I think likely the feel of the text. Is it all in one war battle? You know, where they're all lined up, you know, doing all that? Or is it over a period of time? Don't know. But we know this. 
Shamgar, you don't want to get him mad. Okay? This dude is something else. And the Lord's behind it. Bottom line, Shamgar also yashad Israel. That's important here in just a minute. He saved Israel, yashad. It's, it's, it's kind of like Yeshua. Uh, he saved Israel. With that on the table, I just want to step back here and kind of say, if your life was summed up in one sentence, what would it be right now? Seriously. Well, I'm a great student or a great businessman, great businesswoman, great mom. Um, What would it be? There's something about that that as I sat on this week just hit me. Because there are times where, what are you really all about? And work matters, home matters, it all matters. But in it, would it be the type of thing that there is something about you being the tool of the Lord as a driving capacity item? Listen, you can build your business, you can have... have, you fill in the blank. But in the long-term eternity of it all, so what? Hey, Shamgar got one sentence. Shamgar was used by the Lord, maybe even as a pagan, to save Israel. How sweet. Sweet. Okay, I want to step back even more and kind of take a look at these three that we've had and say this. These three men that have been used, by the way, chapter 4 and 5 is about an amazing woman, Deborah. These three men so far in the story are completely different from one another. They are completely different by heritage. We could be very much that we have Israelite and non-Israelite being used. We, we could have here so far that in it, well, we do, we have a war general, we have an assassin, and then we have this guy, we're not quite sure exactly how it worked out, but we get this idea with an ox goat, he took down 600 Philistines. And in that, I want to bring this up. The Lord is so cool. He is so creative. He is so unexpected. And so often we kind of get in our mind this idea that the Lord is somehow same o same always doing what is expected. Why is that happening? Because that's what the Lord just does. He's sitting in his chair and it's like point number 32 out of the contract of who God is thing. And he does the same thing all the time, all the time, all the time. Here's the reality we're going to see in just a moment. God is the creative one. We're the boring ones. He is the unexpected ones. We are the expected ones. And in it, it's this thing. If you have this idea that God is boring, that God is uncreative, that God is same o same o, that somehow in this, that God is just raising up lemmings to all look the same, with the same background, the same style of hair, and the same look, and the, and the same uh, who they are in every facet, just a bunch of lemmings walking along, and that's what God loves. You have a wrong view of God. And if that is your view of God, I'll say this, you are having a hard time doing relationship with that God. Why? Because that's boring. It's not exciting. It's not wowing. It's not awesome. Are there things about the Lord that are constant? Absolutely. But friends, he does things uniquely all the time. We right now have going on a baptism class with people in that room 
that over the last months in this year have been redeemed very uniquely. The same gospel, vastly different stories. And that's all to the glory of God. He is about redeeming people unto himself. He is about maturing and restoring his people unto himself. Let me say that again. He is about, always about redeeming people unto himself. And he is always about maturing his people and restoring his people unto himself. But the ways in which he does that is so vastly creative. And if you think God is boring, I just will lovingly want to say, you are not seeing the God of Scripture. God's people are the typical expected ones. God is the non-typical unexpected one. And yet we think of him as boring and typical and expected. And these three sub-stories are exclamation points on that story. Okay? Now to Judges 6. Just ten verses here. So many things we could say, but uh, we're just going to say a couple things here with uh, these 10 verses. Remember, as you're passing over, we're coming back to chapter 4, coming back to chapter 5, chapter 5 on Mother's Day. Looking forward to that. We're going to just start in chapter 6. Pastor Cody's going to be taking us on here from here in quite a, some big sections of Scripture following about Gideon. Looking forward to that. So here we are in chapter 6, and uh, it's a new scene, okay, new sub-story. And the question is, what's the state of God's people in chapter 6? What's the the Lord doing in chapter 6? And here we go, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Sad and expected. We've seen this story again and again and again, and as I said the other week, before we get too high-horsed about it in our own mind and go, yeah, what a bunch of saps. Listen, this is us. We so quickly, we want to return to what is not the Lord, true? I mean, really, uh, we're transparent here. I'm totally transparent on the stage here with this. True? I mean, it is. In this, we are in the war, we struggle in the war, and yet here they are, but yet this is unique from this standpoint. This is this idea that of chapter two, they abandoned the Lord, they were whoring after small g gods. This is unrepentant reality here. They are continually, unrepentantly in sin and apostasy. We know some of that story, but oh, I pray that would not be you and our story. Okay? We know how easy it would be to go there and be that. And that's where they're at. So, so how do we find the Lord responding this time to it? Uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for how long? Seven years, the Lord gave them into the hand of. Listen, they are prodigaling themselves, whoring themselves away from the Lord, and God again goes after them. How glorious is that? Just to know that. They are unfaithful to their covenant with him, but he is faithful to his covenant with them. And he is going after them. He is the pursuing one. And by the way, he is doing it sovereignly. But Doug, it sounds like it's all the same old, same old matter here again. I know the story. We've already seen it uh, now three, well, two, three times. Uh, He raises up delivery, saves them, all very cool, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Dear God is boring person. Um, Not this time. Take a look at this. This is so cool. People of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord... Uh, gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years, verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east made a coalition and would come up against them. 
And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come like locusts in number. How's that? I mean, like they had their camels that could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. Verse 6, and Israel was brought very low because of a bunch of pagan people. Let's talk about this for a minute. Do you see the upside downness of what's going on here? God's people were brought into the promised land. God's people, it was supposed to be a promised land, and that sounds nice. Uh, That sounds somehow enjoyable. Now, it's a sending-based place and all that. It's not a vacation place. But yet, yet, it's not supposed to be like this. Everything is upside down. Here, God's people are hiding in caves. They're living in caves in the promised land. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This is not what God wanted to happen. And here, God's people uh, each year are planting crops in the plains of the promised land. And then the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east, this coalition flies in like locusts on their camels and everything else that cannot be counted. They devour the produce of the land. They leave no sustenance there. They leave no sheep, no ox, no donkeys. They take it all away. They lay waste the land. By the way, By the Lord's sovereign pursuing hand, they do this. Friends, I don't think we can even begin to understand what life must have been like. These are not kings over. This is a completely different reality. But but they are hiding in the caves of this, or they're planting crops. These people come in and just take everything of theirs and then after however a month or whatever long they're there with it, and then they hightail it out, and then you're left with nothing. How do you live? And then you think, okay, that was a freaky incident. It's year two. Let's plant again. And plant, things are growing. You get hopeful. (laughs) And then... And you're like... And you have kids and a wife and relatives. And you're literally to a place where you're getting to where you're starving and hurting. Dot, dot, dot. And the Lord allowed it on purpose. So much for the prosperity gospel. And the Lord allowed it. Why? Because he loved them. Because he loved them. Because he wants them to come back. That's why. Verse 6, and Israel was brought very low and they needed to be. I don't say that with a smile on my face at all. But they needed to be. Friends, I want to make sure that you understand this. I am not saying, and the text is not saying, bad things, hard times are always the result of sin. Not saying that. Okay? We're a narrative. We're at this point in time. By the way, just ask Job or Joseph about that. That's not what's the case for them. Uh, We're not to be like Job's friends where it's like, hey, something bad's happening in your life. Obviously, there's some sin. God's coming after you because we heard in church, God's a pursuer. He's bringing camels like a locust after you. Not. I am saying, and I think the text is helping us to see that God's long-suffering, patient love for us comes to a place and a time where he will allow us to be taken very low if that's what it takes for us to come back to him. Because he knows. 
It's best for you and us and his glory. And I just say, there is nothing wrong when life is hard to ask the question, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? And the answer may be no. There's nothing wrong with asking the question. Because the Lord may simply just be using it to grow you and mature you, James chapter 1. It may be that he is preparing you for a ministry opportunity that you don't even know about down the road. There's so many things that the Lord could be doing, but that could be one. Verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. That's on Samo, so expected. You've heard me say, I don't think they're repenting. I, I, I think they're in pain, and they want out. And you maybe have a different view on that. You may be not liking that I've said that. You may be thinking I'm too harsh on them. Uh, but here's why I've been saying that. Uh, keep looking at the story. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, it's kind of uh, stating it again, what happens? The Lord sent a Navi to the people of Israel. Now there is something completely unexpected so far in the book of Judges. Let me tell you why in this. Because in this whole work of it, what's been taking place, chapter 3, verse 9, Othniel was a Yasha, a deliverer, a savior for the people at the time. Ehud, chapter 3, verse 15, the word that is used is Ehud was a Yasha. He was a deliverer. He was a savior that was come. We saw with Shamgar, chapter 3, verse 31, it says that Shamgar Yashad Israel. We get now here to chapter 6. Something's changed. Something's happening. Something's going on that the Lord knows. Something unexpected is happening. The Lord doesn't send a Yasha. The Lord sends a Navi, a prophet. This is not the same cycle. God's been patient and saving and patient and saving and patient and saving. And now it's time to change the plan. Because God's people right now in this, apparently from God's perspective, does not need a savior. They need a word right now. They need to hear something right now. And so the Lord sends a Navi, by the way, not even named here in these 10 verses that we have, but he sends that. Let's keep reading. The Lord sent a prophet, a Navi to the people of Israel. And he, this prophet, said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You got the idea? That's why he's a prophet. It's not the kind of thing they didn't bring in a, a consultant. Like, what's going wrong, man? Can you help us work this out? No, no, let me tell you what I think's going on. No, no, that's a consultant. This is not a consultant. This is a thus says the Lord word. And here's what he says that the Lord says. Oh, this is so cool. The Lord says, I led you. I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you. And I gave you their land. And... I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. And I said to you, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Just a couple things here. Uh, three things in this. We're expecting a Savior. He sends a Navi. Oh, by the way, the, 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 Yaha, the what was it? The Yasha is coming. But this one changes. Three things that are going on here. Look, look what happens in these verses. First, the Lord reminds his people what he's done. Remember chapter two? They forgot the work of the Lord. 
And so here, the Lord comes in, verse 8, and he reminds him, what what has he done? I've led you, I brought you, I delivered you, I gave you. Oh, oh, big note here. That's not just with them, if you will. Most of that is the past. He's not even saying in all of this, uh, the only thing that really applies to them personally at this point in time is the fact of the, the resulting, I gave you the land. The whole, I led you out of Egypt, that's in the past. The whole, I brought you out of slavery, that's in the past. The whole, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and all who oppressed you, that's in the past. And there's even a component of this, of I gave you their land, that's in the past. But the fact of the matter is the past is critical to their present. And so in this, friends, in this, this is so Ephesians 2. On Easter, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, what has God done? For the person in Christ, I would say this, he's done everything he just said there from the past, but Ephesians chapter two, verses four through seven, but God made alive, raised you up, and seated you with Christ. That, that if you will, nowadays, that's what he would be saying. But, but, but child of mine, I made you alive. I raised you up. I seated you with Christ. And you've forgotten. And you've forgotten. Listen, when we forget what the Lord has done, we are prime to head off in wrong territory. Secondly, the Lord reminds them what he said, verse 10. And he said, I am. That's cool. I mean, that has Old Testament meat to it. Who do I tell them that that you are? Tell them, I am. I am the Lord. Not a Lord, not a God. No, no. I am the Lord, definite article. Oh, and how he adds this, how sweet is this? Your God. I am the Lord, your God, and you forgot. Oh, chapter two, they forgot the work of the Lord and they forgot the Lord. And it's being lived out. And here's the time where God comes to them and he reminds them. By the way, also it tells us in there, he says, you shall not fear the gods in whose land you dwell. We, we, we don't understand the word fear. We think scared of like, boo, But that's not what it's talking about here. It's you shall not honor, you shall not hold in reverence, you shall not awe, you shall not worship. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. And I also told you, don't, 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 you must not worship the small g gods. And friends, The small G gods are all around us. All around us. The Lord reminds them what he's done. The Lord reminds them what he said. And last and we'll finish. He tells them what they have not done. Well, of course he is because he's ticked off. No, he's helping them. He's helping them understand. Listen, but you have not obeyed my voice. Parents, you know that. When the children are done something not right, and they're like, oh, purple gorilla, oh, but this, Bob, but sister, oh, but brother. No, no, look at me. You did not obey my voice. I am the, okay. <laughs> okay, but, but in that, and here the Lord lovingly is just bringing it all in, and he's saying, listen, you forgot what I've done. You forgot who I am. And as a result, You have not obeyed my voice. Well, friends, I think in this we can agree that these sub-stories, and I realize we've jumped four and five, but these sub-stories that we've had so far are telling, we might call this, things are getting worse, aren't they? Things are getting worse. Pastor Cody's going to pick up from here next Sunday, and uh, with it, I just want to close with a thought of 
Why did God's people do that? Maybe a better question. Why can I do that? Why do I do that? And this is a great reminder because of the war. Friends, when we come to Christ, the fact of the matter is we're in a spiritual war, this side of heaven. There's a war going on around us just like they had. And may I remind us, friends, this is not our home. This place cannot satisfy you with the satisfaction beat that the Lord has put in your and my heart. It can't. And we could line us up and tell stories about how money, I got the money and I came to realize that's not what it's all about. I got the popularity and I came to realize that's not what it's all about. I got the chick, I got the dude, and yet I came to realize that fell short. Marriage conference. (laughs) But there's a war going on around us. And there's a war within us. Romans 7.15, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. We get that, right? Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. 1 Corinthians 9.26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. And friends, that's to be our story until Christ returns. So Lord, we close there. And... uh, Lord, I I would just ask that you would help us to be people that remember who you are and what you have done. The fact of the matter of it is, Lord, if we're not people that are in your word, seeing you and holding to you, we're in trouble. We're vulnerable. God, if we're at a place where honestly you're just not all that enticing, you're not all that amazing, you're not all that exciting, you're not all that unexpected, oh God, I would just pray you would work in our hearts to help us see the unexpected God that rules the universe. Father, it starts with right thinking. And so I would ask here today that we would think of you more rightly. Not as a same old, same old God, blah, blah, blah. But as the dynamic, the awesome, the loving, the powerful, the sovereign warrior pursuer that you are. Oh God, help us to see you bigger than we see you now. You know we struggle with that. We so see you small. We so humanize you, Lord. And so when we do that, everything else becomes so attractive and so satisfying in our eyes. And yet you are the one that is stunning beyond all comprehension. Amazing beyond all thought. Working in utterly unexpected, dynamic ways everywhere, all the time. Oh, God. Help us see you big. In Christ's name.